Hi, this is Brennan Davis from Bedrock Games and the Bedrock Blog, and I'm here with Joel Clark for the next episode of Wuxia Workshop. And today we're going to be talking about One-Armed Swordsman and Five Elements Ninja. But first, uh, you have a new game, I think it's called Lone Wolf Fist, that you wanted to talk about. So why don't we talk about that first, and then we'll get into the movies. Yeah, sure. Uh, I just want to do a really quick plug for it. I uh, I got I got a fire alarm to me a couple of weeks ago. I was on a I was on a gaming site, and they were like, "Hey, that game looks cool." When I was talking about it, which is unique for me, mm-hmm. and I was like, "You know what? I'm gonna finish it in two weeks. It's mostly done." It wasn't. It wasn't mostly done, Brendan. That was a lie. <laughs> so two solid weeks, I cranked out like a hundred pages worth of content and game system, and I added a bunch of the rules from Tian Shang to it. And I made what I call the I Bleed playtest, which is the playtest before it's a real playtest. Mm-hmm. It's actually on DriveThruRPG. If you want to grab it, it is free because it's ugly and it will hurt your eyes and the writing is terrible. But a lot of the system's in there and it's great. So go do that. Now, yes. now uh, can, you, can you explain what system it's for, what, it, uh, you know, what, what project it's a part of, or if it's an independent thing? Well, yeah, it's it's for Tianchang. It's got the it shares a lot of the DNA with that system. It's kind of like a lower tiered version of that. Mm-hmm. Kind of like I don't know if anyone's an exalted fan who watches this, considering how much I loathe that game now. But like it's kind of like playing Mortals and Exalted, where like there are guys that are way cooler than you, and you're you're the guys that are in the dirt and the fire and the atomic waste. Okay, uh, it's it's post apocalyptic. That's the that's the vibe of it. So it's kind of like playing a, a Fist of the North Star game, which is it's a big appeal. And, yeah, it's, it's a Tan Chang game, so if you want to check that system out four or five months early, then that's a good way to do it. All right. I'm, yeah, and you said it's pay what you want, right? It's pay what yeah. You want. I, some people have actually paid me for it, which startled me. So I'm like, you're paying for this? I'm sorry. But, uh, yeah, I'm going to take that money, uh, tip it into the, the uh, Five Emperors bucket, which is the, the group I have that is making Tan Chang. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to use that specifically for this project to, like, buy art. I'm already talking to an artist. Uh, play a parallel, you gotta do layout, probably pay the technical editor I'm talking to, you know, stuff like that. Now, why mm-hmm. is it called Lone Wolf Fist? Because uh, I was sleep deprived and I had to think of a name in like 30 seconds, and I'm like, <laughs> uh, you know what? Lone Wolf is cool, uh-huh. and they punch fists. Okay, all fists. right. I'm gonna check so it out. I haven't had a chance to check it out yet, but I'm, that's gonna be at the top of my list after the program. Good, um, good. Man. Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I, I did something like that too. Like the uh, I like the idea of doing sort of like a like more mundane type characters in a world where there are more powerful people than you. And that's when I did Strange Tales. That's how I approached it, and I think it can work really well. Like you, you know, if you sort of come up with a lower lower tier of power for a game, and and let people play the the grubbier characters for a little <laughs> while, you know, and that's see what it's true. like to be on the bottom. Uh, you know, it can work for certain things. Um, but uh, you know what we should do too. I have a since, since you know you kind of did a last minute adventure thing, and I have an adventure idea in my head. At the end of this, if we have time, uh, I wanna I wanna hash out an adventure concept with you and see what you think. Ooh, yes, so, yes, um, absolutely. Uh, More private adventure writing, folks. You heard it here first. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so before we get into gaming stuff, uh, you know, I made you watch Five Elements Ninja and One Armed Swordsman, and so just uh, in, you know, they're both Cheng Chang movies. I'm sorry. I'm glad you did. I lost and, a lot of, I lost some sleep for those movies. Worth it. This so, is good. These are really good. So they're both Chang Cha films, but one of them, One Armed Swordsman, is from 1967. So it's a very early kind of classic Shaw Brothers film. And Five Element Ninja is like 1982. So it's like an early 80s, sort of this period in Shaw Brothers where everything is getting a lot more experimental, chaotic, unpredictable. Uh-huh. 
and uh, and we'll and it's interesting to see the the range. But what what was your initial response to them? I I liked these. I liked both of them, and I watched them in the order you suggested, which is One Arm Swordsman first, and then Five Element Ninja second. Mm-hmm. And you're right when it comes to uh, One Arm Swordsman, that is almost the archetypical Wuxia movie. It's got a really solid three act structure. It follows a main character, and like all the stuff you'd expect to happen, like his. You know, his father dies in the first scene. He, he loses his arm, and he's complaining. It's like it's like beat for beat, exactly what you expect, and I loved it. Like even though it's predictable, it's really good, and it's suspenseful to the last minute, which is a trademark Shaw Brothers thing. It might, that might just be a Wuxia thing in general, but like I know, like every time I watch a Shaw Brothers movie, until the last three minutes, you don't know how it's going to end. Yeah, you know? no, that's true. That's, that's my question of that. And then Five Elements Ninja happened, and I'm like, it's like a comic book exploded. I love it. So um, it's a little zanier. With that's that's my weakness. I like that Gonzo stuff. So you got like ninjas that all have elemental themes, and you got like little blue ninjas paddling around their little inflatable ducks with blow darts. I'm like, yeah, that's my jam. Five Elements Ninja. So uh, much more zany, although. Almost the same movie in a lot of ways. I think we'll get to that later. But I, I loved them both. I, I really enjoyed One Arm Swordsman, and then I'm never going to stop rewatching Five Elements Ninja. Mm-hmm. That was just glorious. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting. Yeah, because One Arm Swordsman is number one. It's more of a classic love story almost. Like there's like a there's like there's a romantic section in it. It's uh it's 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 a lot more slower paced, I would say, than Five Elements Ninja. Five Elements Ninja, Ninja people are getting ripped apart all the time there's a there's a femme fatale that's you know like yeah. a lot more a lot more revealing that like there, there's a kind of femme fatale character in one Arm swordsman the woman who cuts off his arm but but she's still like a reputable swordswoman she's not at all i saw her as kind of a brat myself so yeah well you know what that is it's it's uh, it's all based on uh the return of condor heroes story it's uh it's sort of, it, it's, it's like he took one little section from the the middle of the story and he turned it into the movie, and then he changed a bunch of stuff. So, like the the character in in Return of Condor Heroes is Yangua, and the and the woman who cuts off his arm is is uh, is is Guafu, who's the the daughter of a big hero in the story, and and it's kind of a similar thing. There's even like in the story, there's even these two two guys named the Wu brothers, who are sort of those two characters at the start of the film that are uh, making fun of him. But the situation is quite different. Um, so the specifics are different, but the the general things are still there. Um, but yeah, and so she, so she, so in the original source material, she, she uh, the main character, the the main character who gets his arm cut off, uh, the woman who cuts off his arm is similar to her. She's kind of bratty and just incapable of seeing how she's wronged people, uh, even after cutting off their arm. Um, that made her a very appealing character for me. I think that might be one of my favorite character archetypes is really vain and blind how bad they are because that's that's me, baby. <laughs> well, <laughs> so I was like, I like you, lady. Well, she, she yeah, she, well, she's one of these characters that you're sort of supposed to, you're supposed to enjoy disliking her. She's that kind of character. Um, but I thought right. I thought that the woman in um, Five Elements Ninja was was a little more interesting. What was her name? Senchi, I think, was her name. Yes, um, I liked her quite a bit, actually. Um, my my favorite. There's a lot of good scenes with her. I think that's the thing that's appealing about her to me is that like every time she's in a scene, she's like, "Hey, yo, 
this is my scene. Yeah. So, like, uh, she's got a real presence in the movie, and she's definitely there to be noticed. Like, they, they, they put her in this, like, like, what is a mesh body stocking thing, and she's really scantily clad, and she's good looking. So, like, you notice her when she's in a scene, and, like, she has a lot of different roles in the movie. She's, like, a, she, she's a ninja, so she goes and is disguised as, like, this demure young lady that, like, tries to help out while she's secretly poisoning and trapping everything. And, like, yeah, she's she's really fascinating. And, like, my my favorite scene with her, unfortunately, is right after she, uh, she, she bites it, and the guy who kills her is like, ha, I was right about your trap. Oh, shit, was I right? Oh, God. Yeah, no, that was, that's the interesting... That it's like, uh-oh. So, so, so the, the interesting thing about that scene is, number one, that that, that, that even happens. That, that, that like, uh, that, the, that the hero just kind of, you know, just kills this woman like this. And then yeah. he has his doubts after. And I, I don't know, I, I just, I, it, it's sort of like an unexpected moment. Because I was not, ex- when I first saw this film, I was not expecting that to happen. I, I was expecting, well, maybe she'll die, but it'll be because the ninjas kill her. Like, you know, like he, like he's Yeah, gonna, like that's you what know. you'd expect. But yeah, no, he kills her. Then he's like, I'm smart. You can't trick me. And then he kills her, her ninja friends. And he's like, I was right. And then he has this moment of doubt. And he's like, holy shit, maybe I'm not right. Anyway, I gotta go. Yeah, and he wasn't right. He was wrong. He was he was completely wrong. Now, I don't think that they would have ended up a couple, obviously, because she killed uh, one of his one of his uh, sect uh, sect brothers. But I, and, you know, and, so she kept trying to uh, put six months of hard labor over. I killed your master and your clan. Yeah, no, it's, it's like, man, you're really a psycho, huh? Yeah, you can't. That, the, the things she did were pretty unforgivable. But but usually in a movie like this, the hero is not going to kill that character. Do you know what I mean? That was sort of the thing that was yeah. surprising. Um, I didn't know he was the hero because halfway through the movie, I'm still thinking Fist Guy is the hero. Nope, he's toast. And then it flashes. I was like, because he dies and the master's in the, in the building. It's burning. He's choking to death. And he, then he dies. And I'm like, isn't that everybody? Did they, where's this movie going? This is only halfway done. And then it flashes that guy. And I'm like, Oh, he's the main character? Holy God! Then it comes out, he's a ninja. And it's like, oh, all right, well, let's it, keep going. You know, well, it's one of these things where, you know, there is sort of, uh, um, you, there's always been this, like, debate, especially around stuff like Oriental Adventures and stuff like that. Like, how much Japanese stuff do you do you have in a wuxia campaign? And, and obviously Japan's there. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, there is a Japan. So, like, you know, you read wuxia novels, you'll... you'll Japanese characters will make their way into the stories and and you know and this is I mean this obviously is probably riding the ninja craze a little bit because it was early 80s but uh, but was, immediately was like 80s ninja craze but there but there are movies where they have ninja like this in the um in in in, in the stories it's just that they would come they come from Japan they're not you know they're not generally um you know from the area but I did note it, later on when he's getting ninja training the guy is like oh yeah China started this out it's well, that's always but, started. That, but that's always even like if you like ever take a martial art like that's always the thing people say oh it, it, it was originally our idea you know that that's pretty that's a pretty common thing to hear um and you no, know it's like well one of like, oh, one God. of our people punched one of your people a thousand years ago so we really you know launched your uh your your martial arts lineages you know, Japanese guys clucking their tongues, shaking their heads, like, oh, come on, guys, seriously? It's I, like saying the Romans in America. I, I wish I had the book right on hand, because I can't remember the title off the top of my head, but there's a history book by a historian who's also a martial artist who who tries to, who, who wrote, like, a, a history of, of Asian martial arts with the intent of 
kind of debunking some of the some of the myths about them and and challenging some of the uh, the origin stories. It's kind of an interesting read. Um, but again, we're we're in the realm of of of, of romantic fantasy here. So like, there's yeah, there's... and I a thing that actually really impressed me about this movie is that it started out with a super noble Japanese guy being a super badass and honorably killing himself with seppuku. Because I was like, okay, it's called ninjas, and there are ninjas in it. So they're from Japan, even. It's a Chinese movie. This is going to be racist as hell. Not really. Like, not appreciably. Yeah, you know, you, it starts you... off with really... It, the, the, the Japanese in the movie are portrayed as noble, and they're portrayed as cunning and capable. Whole time. So, like, there's not a whole lot of, like, really nasty racist stuff, which surprised me. Because, like, talk about, like... Uh, th- there's some significant racial tension <laughs> yeah. between China and Japan after World War II, so... Well, there was there's a lot. Of, I mean, there's a lot of history there. Um, I, I think that the uh, uh, you see it a lot in the kung fu craze movies when the with the Japanese schools. Uh, the, you know, the, that's that's where you really will see a lot of sort of the more the heavy-handed uh, racial stuff. But um, but again, you know, there's I mean, there's like a real history there too. So it's sort of you know, it's it's, it's a it's it's easy to understand if you understand. <laughs> what's going on yeah no, i'm not i'm not blaming anyone for any attitudes they have i'm just saying that like that's what i was going and expecting i was like they're legit doing like this like a japanese clan coming in yeah you know and there, there's a little bit of we did it first and there's a little bit of the bad guys use trickery because they're the japanese and like that okay but like it's not it's not like an oppressive racist overtone no and no. I'm going to compare it to something that hit me in the face with racism a couple of a couple of years ago. Uh, Do you ever see a movie called Babes on Broadway? I know this is a weird no, diversion. No, I never, I never okay, seen. It's an Andy Rooney vehicle. All right, and this is back when Andy Rooney was tap dancing. So this is like in the '40s, it's uh-huh. black and white, and like they're just it's about kids who go and hang out on that uh, a boulevard in Broadway trying to get on a, in a show. Like that's it. That's the movie. That's why it's called Babes on Broadway. They're all kids hanging out. They're good at dancing. All right, so. The, the the arc of the movie is we're going to put on a show. And in the end, they put on a show. And the show is, like, in the middle of it. They're, like, doing their little dance about what kind of show are we going to put on. And then it's like, let's do a blackface show. Oh, I know. Okay. Wait, what? And then it just opens up. The curtains open. I'm not kidding you. And everyone's in blackface. It's this huge line. And it's just, like, this racist nightmare for the next ten minutes. And, I mean, like, they don't – they lay it on thick. It is horrible. you got people eating watermelon – you've got like everything you would expect to see in a minstrel show and i'm just like oh my god what is happening so like the movie was totally just normal pablum until then and then it was like boom remember this white people and i was like oh god so well, i think there was none of that here no yeah no well also i think i mean i haven't seen that movie so i don't know but i think when, whenever you watch a movie from a different time or a different place there's obviously gonna like it's not gonna be oh, yeah. modern you know you're not gonna have modern sensibilities that one that sounds even maybe egregious for the time but i i haven't seen that it was so. egregious for the time yeah, like I, they they really effed up in that one but um, however the, the point i'm trying to make is that to contrast this movie didn't have anything like that there was maybe something subtle a couple of digs here and there but it really wasn't Pronounced. There was the the director who made this also made um, uh, a movie called the uh, was it not the tournament um, uh, uh, it's off the, I can't remember the name of it right now for some reason but Duel of Fist that was it Duel of Fist and he made a sequel called The Angry Guest and in The Angry Guest the real back bad guys are revealed to be uh, you know these uh, Japanese villains and and so he gets a little bit more into that territory there but but again I think it's I think it's um, 
you know, you, you know, whenever whenever you're watching this stuff from you know another place, you kind of have to mm-hmm. go in expecting that you might see some things that rub up against your sensibilities. Um, but uh, in this case, it didn't bother me, which was great. So I actually just enjoy this awesome movie. It's really good. Um, I feel like we're neglecting One Armed Swordsman though. Yeah, well, One Armed Swordsman is actually my favorite of the two. I that right, so I, I figured I'd let you talk about, about your favorite. Well, I mean, One Armed Swordsman number one, it gets into the whole the the character is uh, is you know he loses an arm and 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 a fundamental principle of any martial art is perseverance. And so I think that um, I think the thing that I find appealing about it is is sort of just the willful overcoming of of the of the of the disability that's handed to him you know early on in the film and in the source material that it's drawn from the character actually loses his arm midway through the story so it's even more Ooh. of a thing in the in the in that in the, in that version but this one really captures the essence of it i think and and so you know for me that's the part that i really like about it i also like that it's a really good love story and it kind of gets all the all the stuff that you 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 know that i like about about the martial world where you have this cycle of grudges and the cycle of violence and the character is trying to, you know, remove himself from the martial world, but he kind of keeps getting pulled back in. And, and, and in this case we get a, a, a happy ending, which is, which is sort of a, you know, you're not, you're not always guaranteed that in these movies. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's just a nice film and there's a sequel that's also really good. And there's also the return, the, the new one armed swordsman, which is excellent. Um, and I think Jimmy Wang Yu even made like an unofficial uh, uh, one-armed swordsman. Um, but uh, but yeah, I I I, I just really uh, like this film, and I think that it's something that you, you you know, it's always tricky incorporating loss of limbs into games. But I think if you're doing a wuxia game, it should really be on the table. Like the possibility of a character losing a limb at any time should be present. Um, and so I, you know, I, 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 I always keep these kinds of films in my mind when I'm when I'm working on stuff. Um, in fact, we had a character who lost his leg in the middle of a of a random encounter uh, not too long ago. Um, but yeah, so I don't know. Uh, what were your thoughts on the movie beyond that? Oh man, well, I, I was surprised at like how well it cleaved to a three act structure. Like I'm I'm not used to that in wushu movies. Wushu movies generally have a, a much, like, I'm not, I can't really fully wrap my head around the way they're pacing them. They, they always suss out really well. I'm always pleasantly surprised. But this one, I was like, this is a three-act structure. Okay. Like, they, they set it up, he loses his arm, he goes to a period of mourning and gets some kung fu techniques, then he makes a triumphant return and fights the bad guy. That's a that's really, like, solid writing. Well, I, I don't... I don't, I, I don't know for sure because I'm not like you know this is not my area of expertise by any stretch. But what I've been told is that that they might have something more like a four act structure might be the more common thing in, in a lot of Chinese movies and literature. Again, I don't know. Uh, you know, I'm sure somebody could could uh, could weigh in in the comments or something. But uh, technically, but, a three act structure is a five act structure anyway because it's got well, the introduction of the Daniel Ma. What you le- what you learn to do if you watch a lot of Wuja or just a lot of movies from around the world is just kind of just go with it, you know. And, and and one of the pleasant one of the pleasant things I I mean it's interesting that that the thing you like about this is that you discern the three act structure because one of the things that I often like about the genre is that I 
that I get away from a lot of those patterns. Um, yeah. Uh, the, the predictability makes a lot of movies less good in, in the West. Like, I was watching uh, Guardians of the Galaxy again recently, and I was like, as I was watching it, and I like that movie, I was like, the only time I'm really enjoying this is whenever it's divorcing itself from that structure, because it's so familiar. Yeah. It's, it's Everything is three-act, which is one of the reasons, like, and I agree with you there, it's one of the reasons I like to get away from that and watch Wushu movies, because it has a different pace. It's like listening yeah. to music in it with a different, uh, what do you call that thing, rhythm? I don't know what pace time signature? Oh, oh, yeah. oh, time signature in, like, yeah, music? Yeah, yeah, that's it's it's like that. It's like if everything has like if everything's in four four time, like I like four four time just fine. But like, give me some Danny Elfman once in a while. No, that's man. that's exactly it. You kind of need to break up the the time signature on things, and you kind of need to try different. You know, not every song has to be a uh, uh, what is it uh, verse, chorus, verse, or whatever the you know whatever yeah, sort of you bridge know, all that. Yeah, yeah, you. you, you you, you, like, for example, listen to like an old Roy Orbison song. There's like almost no structure to those things. He just kind of keeps crescendoing, and and uh, and it's one of the cool things about them is he kind of he. I, it's almost like he didn't really know what the uh, the, the standard pattern was, so he just kind of did his own. And, uh, and but so, that that kind of creativity makes a wonderful variety. Yeah. So, like yeah, I, but I. I, I don't know I don't know that I was delighted to see a three act structure. I just was able to recognize it and I was like it, that made it unusual for a Wuxia film, which made it even more interesting for me. Okay. But that's, that's what I'm commenting on is it's kind of unusual. Uh, there was a, speaking of un, like really unusual creativity, uh, you ever hear of Captain Beefheart? No, no, I've never heard <laughs> okay. of that. Look, look that up. Uh, it's it's an album from I want to say like the mid seventies. I think it was on Frank Zappa's label. It's extremely weird, but okay. very creative. Uh, and they, I was looking into the history of how they made that. And apparently, like the guy whose idea it was to make that album loved music and knew nothing about it. So he got some musicians together and was like, okay, here's the sounds I want to make. Let's okay. make this happen. And you combine really like high minded masters of music with complete naive creativity, and it made Captain Beefheart. It was really good. Yeah, well, I, I don't know. It's good. It was weird. I haven't heard of that one. My dad used to listen to Frank Zappa, though, so I'll, maybe I'll check his uh, his record library and see if he's got something called Beefheart in there. All right. So the so the next thing we wanted to talk about was, you know, just how these movies relate to gaming. And before the podcast, you had mentioned something about how uh, both of them involved bad guys having you, uh, having tricks and I think you also said there were like three things that you felt tied the movies together uh, for purposes of this discussion I can't remember all three of them though we were talking about them I know one of them was the bad guys are tricksy like okay. both of them the bad guys like because at first I couldn't distinguish who the good guys or bad guys were and then I realized that the bad guys in both cases were the ones who were using dirty underhanded tricks I'm like okay so that's that's how you determine who the bad guys are uh, the second thing is you have to have the right tool for the job. Both of them have this theme of, like, weapons having an exact counter, and if yeah. you get your weapon countered, you're toast. Uh, so that was the other thing. Those are the two ones I can remember. There was a third one, too. I remember what the other third thing was that I remember in both of these, but they had that in common as well. Oh, so. you know what it was? Your whole clan is dead. That's what you told me. Oh, that's right. Your whole clan is dead. That was the third thing, because in both cases, they start off with just a massacre. Like, one clan is just annihilating the other one. So, actually, I think both of them start off, like, both of them are really similar in that regard. They start off with uh, clan one completely kicks the ass of clan two. 
Clan Two decides to use evil tricks and and what and counter their weapons, and um, then they massacre Clan One. Your clan is dead. Act Three. We figured out your trick. You're dead. The end. Well, that that's sort of the fun thing, and you see this in a lot of these movies where some guy comes up with a really good technique or has a special weapon or a special way of using the weapon, and then the you know the enemy or the main character figures out a, a response to it and and i think i think that's something that you know in wuxia is important to sort of allow for if you're gaming which is in it and i think it doesn't really matter what system you're using i think this is where whatever system you're using a rulings over rules approach can be really handy if the rules aren't allowing you to do this but if the players say, okay, we're going to try to do this in response to this bad guy's really super-duper killer move, you know, if it's a reasonable way to contain it, uh, giving them, you know, whether it's in the form of a bonus or saying, okay, you've invented this incredible new technique that, uh, that'll, that'll take out the bad guy when he, when he leaps into the air, you know, because you've decided you're going to stab him in the belly because his belly is exposed as he's, you know, as he's, as he's lifting his arms over his head or something. Uh, in this one, it was particularly clever because they, they designed a specific sort of locking device to use on their swords. And it was designed specifically for their sword and specifically for their style. And they also, the movie, the, they kind of gloss over it a little bit because they can't show you all 64 moves, but they say like he has 64 moves or something and they have, and they've invented 64 counters to, to, to each of the moves. And they count them, darn it. And so, the, and so they, so, so they're able to lock the sword and then stab them. And, and they basically use this to take out like, you know, a, a, you know, a, a huge number of, of, of the guy's followers from the golden sword school. And, uh, and the only reason it doesn't work on the hero is because he's, his arm's been cut off and he has to fight with his other hand and all of their devices, all of their tactics are, you know, intended to be used with, uh, with the opposing hand. And he also has to use a, a shortened sword because he's fighting with his left hand. So he, he's like the one guy that can kind of get around their, their big trick. And uh, I don't know, you, you can, I think you can incorporate this kind of stuff into a game pretty easily. Um, whether it's at the mechanical level or just at the campaign and ruling level, um, but you know, I, I don't, I don't know if, if, if this is something that you've given thought to or. Oh yeah, yeah, big time. Because I remember, like, I'm the guy who's doing the the successor Legends of the Wulin, and in Legends of the Wulin, that was actually a mechanic. Mm-hmm. Uh, they used the uh, the laughs and fears mechanic, which was a little more broad. I think that what we're talking about, like this, the kind of like I will lock your sword with the sixty four golden-armed right-hand swordsman locking counterblade and then cut you with a knife. That's pretty specific. Yeah. <laughs> is a little more general. Uh, and it was it was a more like, if your style has the ability to overcome their style with ease, it laughs at it. Mm. And if their style is weak against your style, they fear you. And if you get both, you get a, you get a big swing advantage. It really mattered, actually. The problem was that it was... Th- these weren't really concrete rules terms, so they were very negotiable. And whereas in a classic game, like you said, you use a ruling as a GM, Legends of the Wulin doesn't, doesn't really kind of carry on that legacy of rulings and rules. Yeah. It, it is a more like of approach kind of like Fate, where it's a lot more negotiable and everyone has a lot more like uh, narrative power. Okay. So it led to a lot of arguments, unfortunately. And okay. uh, that's, ultimately I had to toss the mechanic because I, I couldn't figure out how to do the 64 golden arm right hand swordsman blade locking thing in a way that was actually satisfying because like 
you, you almost literally have to just write that exact thing down well, whenever you're designing a thing. I think with something that specific, you either go that specific, like, okay, there's a technique in the game that does this, or if you're playing, you know, like classic D&D or something that has, you know, more broad mechanics, the situation is so specific that you can kind of rule on it fairly easily, I find. So, like, you know, if, if, if it almost doesn't matter what the system is. If a player says, hey, when he uses that golden sword, I'm going to use this specific device that I made. and Because it, it's only going to work on that one guy. You know, you can just say, yeah, sure, that's fine. You know, that, that makes sense. You know, just keep in mind now that since you're doing that, the, you know, they might be able to come out with a counter counter to your, you know what I mean? Like eventually really that happened in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I think earlier I was, I was kind of saying that's basically rock, paper, scissors game design where you have the perfect counter for them. So they have to make the perfect counter for you. And then you have this kind of cyclical thing. Yeah. Uh, and rock, paper, scissors is the ultimate form of that because there's exactly three and that's exactly the smallest number that you need to make that concept work. You have super powerful gold sword technique, the sword locking blade, then guy who uses his left hand and the knife. Bam, yeah. three. No, and I think that's something that you can you can bake into a system. Um, you could certainly like say, okay, I'm making this specific sword school, and I, again, it's going to vary tremendously depending on what game mechanics you're you're, you're applying here and what system you're using. But mm. if they have a set of you know whether it's feats, whether it's you know some kind of martial arts abilities in the game, whether it's um, some kind of class related ability. You can you can you can build them with an eye towards okay, but maybe there's this other school in the game or this other approach that's particularly good against this group, and and trying to sort of build that in in advance. That's something you can definitely do. It takes a lot of forethought. Um, it does you, know, you, know, uh, you again though? You're you're basically going back to rock paper scissors there. Like the 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 scissors school is going to have an advantage against the paper school, yep. which in turn will have an advantage against the rock school. Uh, there's something like that as well in Lessons of the Woolen with the uh, the chi, uh, the chi wheel, because they have the five elements. Mm-hmm. And in in Taoist chi theory, every element has the element that it beats and the element that beats it, and then the one that it, it corresponds to where they kind of get along. So if you're using a fire style and you're fighting a water guy, it's gonna be hard for you. Um, there, yeah, you can make that into a system with varying degrees. I, I, uh, it, instead of making it an ultimate, this will beat the sword technique with the sword locking, it's a little more like you will have a well, bonus. When I was a kid, I can't remember the name of this toy. It was like little figurines, and they were like all elemental based. And they were, I think it was, I don't remember if it was the four or the five elements, but it was, it was like, you know, fire beats water kind of a thing. And like, and, and they had these decals on their chest so that you, you, it just looked black until you put your finger on them, and then it would reveal what their oh, elemental yeah, source was. Oh, what was that? Those little rub stickers that had the the heat thing on them. Yeah, yeah I remember those. Yeah, the Transformers used those at one point too. Because they they must have they became a thing for a while. They and, became and, a thing. Yeah. Much like that green goop stuff from the turtles playsets became like a thing for a little while. Like you can get your hands on that stuff. It was cool. Oh yeah, we for, yeah I remember we had there was um they were putting that in all kinds of toys. I remember I had a He Man. I think it was a He-Man toy where they had some kind of slime trap, like that, you know, using that green goop. But uh, it's a slime factory. You know, every toy uses it. But um, but but that was a that always that always kind of stuck with me because those I remember having a lot more fun with those figures than some of the other figures because there was like a system. Do you know what I mean? There was like a there was a method for determining who won <laughs> and who didn't. Um, and and so you know, whereas if you were you know if you were playing with you know virtually any other any other action figure it was kind of it was kind of who who was able to to 
to sort of browbeat the other people into 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 submission. Um, that was a that's what they call uh, the cowboys and Indians problem. You know, I shot you with an arrow. No, uh, yeah. Yep. That's why that's why we have mechanics, Brendan. Because we're still playing cowboys well, and well, Indians. That, that, we have dice now. Yeah, no, that that's. That's that's why I don't usually use that analogy either, just because I think that like you know even even in a very simple sort of rulings over rules game, you're you're not you know it's it's you know the the you have an arbiter you know what I mean the the, the, the referee second you have an arbiter the second you have a GM yeah. you're not playing cowboys and Indians anymore I mean, you yeah. actually have a real game yeah exactly, um, but yeah so so I like I don't know the, I I think I think those are de- definitely uh, you know things that you could sort of take from the movie the you know the 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 way that techniques and tactics can be used to to counter each other um and i know uh also again this is related to that but this idea of inventive weaponry i think is really useful in a wuxia campaign where you you know you you see it here with um with with the guy makes the he makes the uh the hooking sword or the hooking device uh and you see it in the in 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 Five Elements Ninja with the vast array of of cool little and, and they're all based on like you know ninja ideas but like you know you, you have all these different weapons that they're able to deploy uh, to, and ha- that have different effects and uh, in in, in a, oh go ahead in the last scenes oh my god yeah this movie is the gift that keeps on giving I, I want to I don't want to undersell because like that point you're making where they all have these weird weapons. The first time you encounter them, they kill everybody. But then later on, they do the same thing with the counter weapons and kill them all with the counter weapons. And they, and it's so elaborate. It's so so like just to give people an idea, great. the ninja are the, they're all based on the elements, and the earth ninjas actually burrow under the ground, and they seem to be the most dangerous ones. They're the ones that are uh, yeah, because they spear they're, they're spearing people in the groin from below the sand, and and the solution is they. Is they turn their they turn these metal staffs into stilts essentially with spikes on the bottom. Or stilts, yeah. they're great. And, and so they're walking around on stilts, stabbing into the earth and killing the ninja that are under the ground. Um, and that's not even the end of it. There's still more elaborate devices and all kinds of things. Um, but that's my, probably my favorite one is sword stilts. But guys, like I've never really like batted for a movie. Go see Five Element Ninja. You owe it to yourselves, yeah. folks. And 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 also the thing about Five Elements Ninja that's that's pretty notable is the amount of carnage. Like they're like people are getting you know ripped apart in all kinds of ways, and yeah, it's, it, 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 it's it's a real you know. But but it's it's so surreal that it doesn't really it doesn't have it doesn't have the it's impact. More of, yeah, it's you know, not it's, gruesome. Um, it's uh, it pull out the guy in half, so it is kind of gruesome. But like, even still, but uh, but here's the they, thing: dude, when he got ripped in half, I didn't feel like the guy was actually suffering when he was screaming. Do you know what I mean? Like some movies, that'll happen. I'll be like, oh, you know what I mean? I'll, I'll feel it. Like, where it's about like making you feel the pain. Yeah. And this one, it's more about the spectacle. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, it's more like blood spray is art. You know what I mean? It's more like a uh, the, the who is it? like a, like a Pollock yeah. painting. You know what I mean? It's more like that kind Just, of thing. Um, but, uh, but, but yeah, so I guess what I would say to this though, is what, what, what a, you know, and this is really more about GMing, I think, than, than system, but you can certainly create it in the system too. But, you know, when the players come up with an idea, like, Hey, I want to make this special device and I want it to do X, you know, kind of 
you know, considering it and rolling, you know, you don't necessarily have to go with it if it's a bad idea, but if it, if it's, if it's makes sense, if it's kind of an interesting solution to the problem, you know, I would say, you know, you know, if they go to a blacksmith and ask to have something made, it's, it's perfectly in keeping with the genre, you know, especially, you know, in, in other movies like flying guillotine, things like that, you see it. Um, but being able to sort of invent a, uh, a, uh, a weapon that maybe operates outside of whatever system you're working within uh, is something that you want to be open to. Um, and then just being aware that once that's unleashed, uh, you know, but, but here's the thing. And this is, this is sort of what I, when I, when I talked about the evolving landscape of the martial world, that's what I meant. It's sort of like, you know, the GM should always kind of, you know, if, if, if you, if you allow these things to be introduced that's fine. Just be aware that somebody down the road might also introduce something because, you know, some guy just came up with a super deadly hooking device that is stopping all the swordsmen in the land. So naturally, people are going to now start ta- trying to take that guy out with with, uh, with and, new devices. And important thing to remember about wuxia cinema too, and that you see that in these movies very very strongly, is a lot of the arc of them is the bad guy has a technique we can't beat. So we invent that way to beat him, or we discover it, then we beat him with it. Like, that's that's like the narrative arc of a lot of wuxia. Yep. So if you're going to make a wuxia game, you better be ready to bring that in. <laughs> yeah, though, though there is one thing I will say here. I think one thing we don't want to lose sight of is the game element. It's still a game. And I think, mm-hmm. I think you can get stuck on this idea of, well, it's got to have everything exactly like it does from the source material. And then you, and then, you know... But but games are unpredictable, so so I think it's always important to allow for uh, things to meander. For example, for for things to not necessarily culminate the way that they might in a um, that, in that's a that's an awesome story. point because um, like a game does not exist in a three act structure. A movie does, a yeah. book does, but like a game, they're gonna pick up and have their next three acts next week. It's more like a TV series. Yeah. And in a TV series, you can jump the shark. You jump the shark with something in a, in a game you introduce, that's what the game's about. Yeah. I, I let my players get three freaking dragons uh, in the last campaign I, uh, I ran. Guess how, what that campaign became about, you know? Taking over you, the world with like, dragons? Yeah, they, ran, they, they blew up the whole world with dragons, yeah. which is exactly what you'd expect, right? But I'd never done it before, so I'm like, you know what? Let's see. Let's, let's, let's stress test this. They had a good time. I learned a valuable lesson. Um, so I, mean, I don't regret it, but if you introduce something that makes the previous stuff irrelevant, then whatever the new thing is you introduce, that's what the game is about. That's yeah. why that kind of specific, I will lock out these techniques from this school, I'm basically okay with, because otherwise those were swords. Yeah. They don't do anything special if some guy has a hook sword or yeah, a no, staff. Exactly, exactly. And in fact, in this movie, they, it, it's really specifically about that sword and that sword style. So somebody that came in with a different kind of sword, they might not be effective against. You know, it's, it's, it's sort of open to interpretation. So I think, I think when it's something that specific, it's, you know, it, it, it's fine. Um, yeah, I'm not. <laughs> but, not uh, too worried about it. But also, so, yeah. oh, go ahead, go it, ahead. That keeps you from jumping the shark if you if you rein it in like okay so we've made the the eighteen elements poison it's not better than all poisons but it does this one thing better than every other poison it's it's very slow and hard to detect yeah there okay that's something you and that can be important and a big plot point and something that matters a lot to the players and they can incorporate in future games that won't kill your campaign yeah. you know no I, I so think you, oh, don't go jump ahead. the shark. 
I'm sorry. Oh no, it's okay. Um, but but yeah, I think with um with the ninja stuff too, that can be really fun. Like the, uh, I remember I brought ninjas into into my campaign at one point, and I just completely pulled from Five Elements Ninja. I had the the guys that were like underground, just like the Earth Element Ninjas, and they were using like plumes of red smoke in their face, and you know all really? kinds of little tricks. They were cool. And, and and I think I think it's it's the same theme that we're talking about. It's just with ninja, it's like even more tricky. It's like even it's 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 like they, they, the cool thing about ninja is they don't necessarily have to be great fighters. They can be less powerful even than the heroes, but their tactics and their tricks are so good that they that they're infuriating to to deal with it until until you sort of figure out how to how to work around uh, all you know their weaponry or their or their tactics. And, and and they do surprising things. I, I think we'll at some point we'll try to watch the movie. Uh, I think it's called Duel to the Death, and it's a it's a it's it's not a Shaw Brothers film, but it was made around a similar. I think around 1983, so close to Five Elements Ninja, and it's got Ninja in it. But they but one of the ways that they poison or they try to poison one of the uh, one of the characters is they drop a thread from the ceiling. There's a ninja on the roof, and he drops a thread down. And it, it lingers, I think, over somebody's cup of tea or over their soup, and then they and then they just start dripping poison down the thread, and you know that was something I pulled into one of my games too because I thought that was that's a really cool way to to kill somebody. Um, and the the ninja really exemplify that, and like again, that, that we should tie that into the whole the bad guys have tricks, like. That's something that technically doesn't exist in the mechanics of a system. Like, you can just describe as a GM, you see a, a tiny, tiny thread over, hovering over this guy's T, but, like, there's no mechanic for thread, you know? We're not going to go, we're not going to get that myopic when we're designing games. So, that's one of those things where, like, with when it comes to tricksy bad guys, I think you are within your, your realm as a GM and as a player to do something that doesn't exist on the sheet. Um... That gives them, like, that lets you interact with that kind of tactical infinity of the sort of shared, imagined space of the game. I pour poison on a thread, and it goes down into oh, the guy's team. Yeah, you have to. You That's have to. Thing. I think, I mean, when I first started playing these games, the first thing that struck me about them was that, you know, I was sort of in this world, and I could say, okay, I'm going to try to do this. And the GM sort of honestly would consider what it was I was trying to do. And I, I mean, I think it's, I, I like both games that are light mechanically and games that are complex mechanically. I tend to, I tend to fluctuate and, and either go through phases where I'm playing more mechanically heavy games or where I sort of, you know, I get tired of that and then I go back to, to lighter games. But w regardless of whether I'm playing, oh yeah, I think that's natural. Um, but regardless of which ones I'm playing, I really like there to be an openness of the mechanics don't have to define everything. Do you know what I mean? Like, like if a and 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 what's plausible and and sounds the most logical should always be able to kind of trump. If there, you know, if there's like a if there's like a if you've hit a uh, what would you call it? If you've hit an edge case where the you know where the mechanics are sort of preventing something that would happen from happening, then you should be able to bust open that edge case in my in my view. And I, I think. Yeah, absolutely, because designers can't anticipate everything. You make rules that cover general situations, and then if it's like, oh, wait, that means you can't open doors. That's weird, yeah. huh? Yeah. yeah. Of course you can open doors. Just ignore that part. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's <laughs> so, sort of the role of the GM is to, is to facilitate the mechanics, say, okay, obviously this was not the intent here. I'm going to allow you to do X, or I'm going to say this, this can happen, or that, you know, 
Um, and I feel like that was such an assumption when I was growing up playing. Um, and it's become less of a widespread assumption, it seems, these days. I think maybe because yeah. of the... I don't, I don't know. I don't want to speculate as to why. Because it's, it's I'm so not hard. Sure but it, the, the truth is, it is a persistent thing that I've encountered a lot on forums and things like that. Even talking to people where they seem to believe the whole game, much like a board game, is contained in the rules. And like, yeah. not for a role-playing game. You, you can't... If you're making rules for rope that aren't just a set of guidelines for GMs or something, then, like, you're you're getting to the point where you can't play the game you're designing anymore. You're not making yeah. a physics simulator, guys. No, no. And and, and I think... Um, I don't know. I, I think, again, every... every I mean, I know that there, there probably are people who... Who do like games that are that are sort of more played raw, and I can I can I can understand where they're coming from, but I just I've just never enjoyed like that's always been something that kind of stifles my enjoyment of the game, um, and and I'll generally adhere to the rules, but I, I like there to be that openness of look in this case I, it just doesn't apply or um, and there's a difference between doing something that's not spelled out in the rules and breaking the rules because the thread thing doesn't violate a rule. You know, it's just not spelled out in the rules. So you've got to have to kind of use your your idea of what would happen in that scenario to, to make it happen as a GM or, or as a player. You, know, you need to talk to the GM about, like, hey, this is the idea that I have. My ninja's going to pour the, the string down and pour some poison on it. Would that work? And, like, uh, there's a there's a technique that gets bandied about on the RPG side a lot called Free Creek Spiel, which is basically that plus the GM just kind of thinks to itself, like, what's the likelihood of that happening? Okay, roll... Seven or higher on two d six. There we go, and that's that's free creek spiel. Is there's no rules. It's just you propose what you want to do. If it's unlikely or if there's a chance of failure, the GM will give you a number. Roll it. Move on. Yeah, I'm totally that's... fine with that. I'm totally. I mean, it it depends. I, I usually my solution is I either try to figure out what ability does this system have that the character has that I could use, and if not. You know, you you know you can you can assign a probability of some kind. I I, th I think having some flexibility there. I think the, again the important thing is that the the and, and and I guess we're maybe getting a little bit away from Wushu here, but the important thing is that uh, that the GM sort of you know again this is this is why having a human referee is important. I think because it uh, that's to me that's always what kind of creates that sense of life to the setting. Um, and so, you know, if the, if the GM, if 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 if, if, the, if there isn't something covered in the rules, or the rules aren't covering it well, and the GM can step in and say, okay, you know what? In this case, I think it's like it's it's a foregone conclusion, so you can just do it. That's fine. Or if the GM says, I think there's like an eighty percent chance, you know, that's you know, fine. Uh, and uh, I, I, this is one of the reasons I like your game so much. By the way, getting back to Wandering Heroes, is that it's one of those games where. It, it really takes that as its core assumption that a human being can do what a human being can do. But in addition to that, here's some rules for kung fu action. Mm -hmm. That's that's a healthy place, I think, to design a game because it means you can always, as the GM, rein it back to, well, okay, but we're in the physical universe here, therefore you can open doors. Yeah. You know, I love that. And it makes the, the, the ability to pull in a free creek spiel, like just roll a 7 plus or something like that, like, doing a simple percentage or whatever, it makes that much more reasonable. Games that have a lot more interlocking mechanics tend to have a cascade failure when you do that to them. Uh, okay. Exalted is, again, a good, good example of this. I don't know if you've ever played Exalted, but Exalted was a game where if you as the GM dared to alter something, it would change the underlying assumptions for so many things that were linked to that. And it just okay. it, it screwed the game over. 
So having more flexibility is definitely an advantage there. You lock yeah. yourself into a bunch of cascaded linked mechanics. Ugh. Well, also, I mean, just as an example, like, you know, with the Kung Fu techniques, like, uh, one of the ways that I use them when I'm actually running the game is if, if a player wants to do something, I'll, I'll let them use techniques in ways that maybe they weren't intended for. Do you know what I mean? If, like, somebody has, like, a counter that allows you, allows you to slide away from an attack, I, you know, and the player says, hey, I want to run away from this combat. Can I use that counter to do that? I'm totally fine with that. That makes total sense to me. Um, yeah. You know? Yeah. Because, and because, again, there's another brilliant thing that you did that I aped in my design with the effect chart was because you, you cleanly describe what the technique does in, in terms of, okay, you slide away from them, like you can, as a GM, make a ruling that makes that technique still have that same kind of general level of power, but rewards their unique use of it. Okay, they're not going to expect you to do that. So not only do you get a little boost in your movement, but they don't get to respond this round because it really surprised them. You just slide right out of there. Again, it's just a, that's a great ruling. It doesn't break the power scale of that technique. And because that technique discreetly works within the game, it, it doesn't annihilate anything. It allows yeah. them to be creative and get an advantage. I love that. Love no, it, Brenton. Well, Such a I, designer. You, well, no, no. I, I, think, I think you should play in some of my games before you drop to that conclusion because I assure you that I, I, I'm just, I, I make plenty of bad calls. Um, okay. Even if you as a GM make bad calls, you designed a really rockin' ass game oh, that allows you to make great calls. So I, I have faith in you. Like, I'd love to play in these games. We're gonna have to set that up. Anyway, moving on. Back to. The, so the you wanted to talk is, about hex crawls. That was something else you wanted to talk about. And I was trying to sort of find a way to make that fit with the movies. And and for me, the the thing that connects all these Shaw Brothers films, but particularly these two. With, with the idea of hex crawls is how whenever I watch a Shaw Brothers movie I feel like I'm in an, like they create a world that I feel like I'm in and I sort of make a mental map of how all the set pieces connect to each other do you know what I mean so like, like that's in a hex map well well no not like that but I mean like you you fill in the blanks like you see the character at the sword school and and again it's because of the sets the Shaw Brothers movies have these beautiful sets that are they're they're just real enough but just fake enough. That they that you can imagine them as maps in your head very easily. I guess is how I would describe it. Um, it is a map in Five Element Ninjas, like the 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 Lady Ninja uh, Shinzu, like or Shinzu, She she straight up maps their whole complex. That's true. No, that's true. So yeah, maps are important. And uh, architects important. I agree. But but I don't know. I just I just I I, I so I always sort of imagine my, my Wuxia campaigns as like Shaw Brothers sets. Like, okay, here's where the tea house is, and here's where that like forest that you wandered through is. And you know, and you can kind of you know, you can you can sort of create like a nice little small just to start, uh, like a small little hex crawl sandbox of some kind, you know, drawing off the inspiration of Shaw Brothers movies. The first the first um uh like conscious attempt I made at doing that when I was working on Ogregate, or even before that, I guess, because I hadn't really. I I I I I I ran a um, what was it? I ran a uh, an old D and D campaign where I I took um, I took Lady Hermit and I took Come Drink with Me and I took like the basic elements of those movies and kind of made a small little sandbox out of it where I had like a temple that was overrun by bandits and I had uh you know like a, a like a black claw devil type gang and you know, all these things that were in those movies. And then I just expanded on them. And, and, and I think that that, 
I don't know. It just, it, it just, I think it works as a as an inspiration for hex crawl material. But I don't know. Maybe you had something more specific in mind that you wanted to to dive uh, into I mean, with that. I, I completely agree, one hundred percent. No argument with everything you just said. Uh, I, I did want to talk about hex crawls in terms of delivering content. I think that you're talking about like. Here's how you can get some inspiration for content. Look at a Shaw Brothers movie. Is there a cool set? Is there a faction in it? Bam. You can take that and put that somewhere. Mm-hmm. And what a hex crawl really is is just having like little chunks of content and a way to access them through way of playing with the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Alexandrian goes into a lot about that. Like when they're a hex crawl thing, they're like, you want players to have an action that they are describing to you in terms of their character's action that accesses content that you've prepared, they can then engage with it as a game. Uh, Alex, can you please stop that, buddy? So, Not right now. Give me a minute. So, Alex, uh, oh, that's okay. Um, so, so, so I'm sorry. So, the, the, the Alexandrian. What's the name of the uh, of the series of our uh, articles or posts? That that's aren't... probably running the hex crawl. Okay. I, I blend a lot together in my head with them because I, I constantly go back to the well with the Alexandrian. I love that guy, uh, but. Uh, and he does that in city in the urban crawl too. When he's thinking about urban crawls, is that series of articles where he's like, you don't want players to say, "I want content from this content tree." What you want them to do is go and say, "I'm going to go to my tea house and hit up my contact to see what the underworld is doing," okay. and that gets them content from the underworld tree. Okay. So, in the the places he puts content are in hexes where you, I'm exploring, you know, the the West Iron Sword Mountains. Oh, okay, you find the Bandit Cave there. Mm-hmm. You describe what you're doing in character that grabs the content and, and puts you in a place. You just grab your your little bandit camp and the bad guys in it, and you start running it like a, a dungeon crawl. Okay, I have I, I think I have a much more shoot from the hip kind of approach with hex crawls. I think we've talked about this. Before. Oh yeah, he's really he's really like elaborate with them. Yeah. Um, oh no, yeah, no, and his uh, the Alexandrian. I use his um. He, he has a lot of good stuff in there on um. Uh, investigations and mysteries and that kind of thing. And he also, you know, he's, he's written a bunch, like a lot of posts have, have gone, uh, have, have, have gone on to have impacts on conversations on forums and stuff. So it's, it's one of these places that I, I always kind of go back to and check out. Um, but my approach to hex crawls, I guess, is I just sort of, I don't know, I've just kind of always done it the same way where I get the hex pad and I, I draw, I draw out everything that I have on the map and and then I kind of flesh those locations and NPCs and groups out, and that's kind of how I've always done it. Um, and and again, you know, a location on that map might lead to another map of some kind. Um, but uh, but but it's interesting. One of the things that uh, uh, we, we we do a, a RPG game lab uh, on like a, about once every month, and um, and. Uh, and, and Rob Conley is on there and and Rob uh, has this saying I can't remember exactly what the phrase is but he he basically says you know eventually all that's left is NPCs like no matter how much you lay down on your map eventually it all gets explored if the campaign is long lasting enough and all that's left there are the NPCs to, to, to and, and, the, and and whatever the NPCs have built and the PCs have built and whatever world has sort of emerged around all of these geographic features so uh, so I tend to lean very heavily on NPCs is, uh, is, is something that I've, you know, even in a hex crawl, uh, you know, I, you know, even if the players are moving around on the hex, on the, on the, on the, on the, on the hex map, so are the NPCs. Do you know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. 
the end, you know, there, there are still active groups and organizations that might be, you know, working against them or working for them. And, and so I, I like to, uh, I, you know, the, the, one of the, again, I probably mentioned this to you before as well, but one of the most, uh, impactful modules that I, that I ran when I was, when I first started GMing was Feast of Goblins, the Ravenloft adventure. And, and that was in the tradition of Castle Ravenloft, which was a living adventure where the main bad guy was assumed to move around and do, and sort of be a free agent, just like the PCs are. And, and that really opened up gaming to me in a way that I hadn't been open before, where before everything sure. was much more static. Um, but when I find when you layer that on top of a, a dungeon or a hex crawl, you really get a much more uh, uh, rich experience. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with that too. Like, you don't want the world to be static. Like, even even within the dungeon, uh, just Alexander goes into like repopulating the mega dungeon, where like, okay, the PCs went, cleared out a few levels of this dungeon, then left. All right, what happened in the meantime? Did some more monsters show up? Did the other did that change the balance of power of the factions? You can do that exact same thing in in a city. Say, you go into the city. There's an evil Marshall Brotherhood. You whoop their butts. Then who replaces them? Is it the players, or they leave and have someone else come in fill the gap? Power vacuums and things like that, wonderful. And it makes it so that you can take the same content, which is city and factions and things you've already prepared, and just kind of remix it between sessions mm -hmm. and consistently get something new going on. And I, I rail against having a plot in your head as a GM. But I absolutely think that NPCs should have plots and plans. So, like, because that becomes the session then. Oh, do we help Condor King? Or are we going to uh, stand against the three vampire lord? You know? Great stuff. So, yeah, and so it's not a lot of work either. You I'm know? Because you just kind of. It's not a lot of work either. It's, this, it's basically the same amount of work put into a normal campaign, except you're just between sessions, you're like, okay. So what are what are these? How are these factions reacting to things? How are these major players yeah. changing? No, Just and and, down. and it's one of those things too where you kind of you don't have to, you, you can sort of vary how much intensity you apply to that. Like some weeks you might not pay so much attention because the players are really active with other things and you just don't want to. You know, you as a GM you can't tend to everything 100 percent 100 percent of the time. Oh, no, um, but the, yeah, but then, but you occasionally want to revisit it. You know, one one of the ways that I do it easily is I just have the grudge table. So when I when I roll on a grudge, well, so, this so-and-so is back in play. That's just an easy way for me to kind of consistently bring people back into the player's world that, you know, will, you know, that they've, who, who they've crossed paths with. Um, and I think you could expand on something like that to, to include all, all of these living elements, you know, just like a, uh, you know, just a way of, uh, if, if you, ideally you're doing it without a table. Ideally you're saying, oh, this is naturally uh, when this guy is kind of going to try to seize the opportunity to take advantage of the players. Um, but if you, if, you, if you have so much stuff that you don't want to bother to keep track of that or you, you need to uh, occasionally remind yourself of things you've forgotten about, tables can be really handy for it. Um, something like just taking the major NPCs of your game, putting them all on a table, and then just, you know... At that point, if you didn't even want to track it at all, and you still wanted to have a living campaign, like you said, you could just roll on that table every couple sessions. Oh, uh, looks like the Garlic Master has a grudge against the players now. Yeah. Let's see how that plays out. 
that's great. You know, again, very little work for a really rich game experience. And and, 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 and you see that at work in both of these movies where, you know, characters come back. In, in the case of One-Armed Swordsman, it's years later to settle a grudge. And in in the uh, in the Five Element Ninja, it's the main character who's settling the grudge. So it's coming at it from the slightly different angle. Um, but uh, but again, if you just imagine the, the players of the ninjas or something, then you know it's a, it's a similar type of thing. Um, but yeah, so I don't know. Any anything else you wanted to uh, discuss about these movies? About these movies in particular. Um, mm. Couple of, couple of, of really brief notes. The last battle with the uh, the, the Lord of the Ninja in Five Element Ninja is amazing. It's really good. It, it was actually reminding me a lot about. Uh, it, it made me realize actually as I was watching it. I was like, wait a minute. This is almost beat for beat the battle with Shredder at the end of the Ninja Turtles movie yeah. from my childhood. And I was like, oh my god. The that's what they were watching. They were watching these these movies, and that's what inspired the turtles. I under I finally understand now. And I was like, okay. And like, so well, Shredder and that guy have a lot in common. Master I, of Ninja Plan. I have not seen that movie in a long time, so I'm just going to assume you're correct there. But but th- but this is an important point because you see, you watch a lot of these movies, and you will see that a lot. You'll you'll see number one, you'll see things that they've borrowed from mo- movies that maybe came from the West. But you'll also see, oh, ten years later, I remember seeing exactly that scene in. In, in this action movie or something. You especially see it with, like, the Hong Kong action movies in, like, the 80s and stuff, where, like, uh, you know, you know when I when I first saw Commando, I had no idea that they got, like, half their ideas from Police Story or something. You know, it's like, uh, there's, like, a whole scene in the mall that I'm pretty sure was ripped right out of Police Story, for example. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure. Um, well, the thing to keep in mind about Wuxia movies is that they, they don't have a huge budget. And, and so, like, they, they have a their competition, such as it is, because they're all competing for your dollars to go to the movie theater to see them. Their competition, the way they distinguish themselves is, hey, we have to have really un, unusual, unique ideas and fight scenes and things like that to draw people in. And you start seeing that happen in American cinema right around the Matrix and times like that, where you start seeing, like, those kind of spectacle moments that you've never seen before in a movie happen. That becomes the draw of the movie. Like... Yeah, so it, that that originated in in wuxia movies, as far as I can tell, because like each wuxia movie I've seen, that's how they're like. If I was looking at it like a producer, I'd be like, okay, what have we got that no other movie in China has? And they're like, color coded ninjas, and I was like, go. <laughs> well, I think you see an evolution. You see, you know, um, you, you you definitely you know see well. Okay, this movie did this, and now this movie is trying to top that movie, or. You know, you you, you, you you certainly can see oh, our martial brotherhood competing against one another. It's brilliant. But um, <laughs> but also I think because it's because you know fighting is such a, I, I guess the closest thing that I can think of in like American movies would be like maybe swashbuckling type films. Where yeah, movies oh, yeah, like it's, that. It's, yeah, or or sword and yeah, sandal type all, movies. It's a red line. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know where you can't you know, you have to change things up because it just gets boring if it's the same. You know, ah, uh, ah, uh, you know, just like over it, and over again, it, and so it just it, naturally will, I think, escalate in a visual medium like that. And oh yeah, and 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 where I think it gets interesting, <laughs> but but they also do some interesting things where they bring in a lot of sort of like the Peking opera tradition and things like that to it. So the movie we saw, Five Element Ninja, that's not technically a Venom movie, but it, it's like it's like what a Venom movie is like. 
And the Venom mm. Mob, you know, they have like a real sort of Peking Opera style background with like you have these acrobatics, and and I'm sure you were picking up on that in in Five Element Ninja, where there's a lot of leaping around and a lot of just like there's amazing really physical work. displays. I'm sorry. There, there is one scene. Um, oh, it's I it's one it's one of the ninja elements where uh, the main character leaps and like it leaps, then it cuts and he's leaping and it's a different angle from the same leap and it's amazing it's really mind-blowing wire work so like yeah i definitely noticed it yeah yeah we should do some we should actually do some proper venom movies at some point because those you really see like the the acrobatics um and i think that's where you get the the physical perfection that you know is there's sort of like there's like a martial arts quality to a lot of stunt work where it brings a lot of the like you know if you do martial arts you know you have to keep doing that punch or that kick until you get it right. You do, you know, you and like, you know, like a, somebody who's been doing it for years, they're still perfecting that kick after after decades. And I think that 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 dedication uh, and and craftsmanship is evident in a lot of the stunt work in these movies, especially, you know, as you get into the you get, you know, you, as, as as things move on into the '80s, where you start to really see uh, this. Um, I don't know. It's sort of it's sort of like this culmination of all the stuff that came before. And, yeah, and, uh, I think you still see that in Jackie Chan movies and things like that. You still see guys that can do things physically that have t- must have taken them decades. To have but he to came out of that. I mean, he's the, he's you know I mean he was making movies in the in the seventies, you know, and so like he and 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 a lot of the like notable Jackie Chan movies are like you know eighties eighties films, and 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 that's kind of what I when I when I say Hong Kong action movie, one of the you know. Jackie Chan films are one of the things that leap to mind, um, and definitely I, w- I would put him in that category of of just having that dedication. Um, you know, I mean, you know, just look at the outtakes alone in some of his movies. And, but uh, but that reminds me, going back to that fight scene, by the way, and choreography. Okay, so there's a scene in that last scene, main character and, and Ninja King are fighting, and he stabs down. And the guy moves his body between the clearly sharp prop blades they were using and that guy, and then leaps up like an arrow and backflips over him in one unedited cut. And I was just like, they just did that? Oh my god! So yeah, the the stunt work in the movie is really fantastic. I think I might have like, glossed over it with how much other awesome stuff is happening. These guys are really fantastic physically. You are correct. It's It's breathtaking to see some of the stuff they do. No, I definitely agree with that, and uh, I, I think that's the note we're gonna have to end on because I, I unfortunately am awesome. out of time here. So, um, so, so we'll end it there, and we'll be back on next uh, next time with with some more movies, and I think we're gonna do Fifth, Fist of the North Star is gonna be something we talk about. I I grabbed a yeah. copy of it, and uh, and yeah, and this Friday we're doing a uh, a movie called Wu Yen on Wushu Weekend, which I would encourage people to to listen in on, and and yeah, so until next time, we will talk to you later.